I realise I'm on tricky ground here. Um, marriage and divorce, it, it's going to be an emotive area. We need to realise that. We need to be ready for it. It, it would be wise for us to recognise that we'll come at it from a bunch of different perspectives. Some people will approach a passage like this utterly uninterested in marriage for themselves. And for them, they may struggle to see some of the punch behind it. They may be inclined to just see it as a slightly odd academic footnote somewhere in the middle of Mark's story. Probably more common for us today. Many of us will have some idea at least that the the idea of marriage is the normal expected state for a mature Christian. As a result, for, for single people, marriage can seem like the be-all and end-all. It's the, the proper good blessing that I'm supposed to be headed for. In which case, if our, if our hopes are pinned on marriage, this kind of passage is perplexing. Why are people asking, how can I get out of it? They've got there. It doesn't make sense. And that might be particularly painful for those who've been hoping for a long time and have not received it. Or there'll be those who are happily married, hopefully some. They'll appreciate much of the symbolism. They might not see the pain or the deep struggles that others experience. And then there'll, there'll be many who find even approaching these subjects really hard. Because they're finding married life bitter, or disappointing, or full of strife. Or because they, or or people close to them, have been through the aftermath, and the consequences of marriage breaking down, of divorce. And it's obviously important that we recognise that as we come to a passage like this. Partly so that, as I read it, I can be aware of where I'm coming from. I can do that sort of meta thing of looking at the way that I engage with the word and puzzling through my emotions. But partly also we just need to be aware of it tonight so that as I speak and later as we pray for each other and as hopefully we go on and we we chew things like this over together, we need to be aware of where each other are so that we can love our neighbours, so that we can understand them, see where they're coming from, and care for and support them. It's difficult. So before we go any further, let me pray for us. And then we'll sort of poke at this a bit and we'll see what falls out. Lord Jesus, please help me to speak tonight. Please put your spirit here with us. Please guide me, give me the right words to say. Please give us open hearts. Please help us to listen, to see past whatever obstacles are in our way. Please show us what we need to know of you. Amen. So what is happening here? Um, We're still in a segment of Mark's Gospel where three times Jesus predicts his death. He, He tells his disciples that the Son of Man has come to be killed and then three days later rise again. And in between and around each of these declarations, there are big chunks of teaching about what being a disciple looks like in the light of Jesus' death and resurrection. 
So back in chapter 8, the first prediction of his death is sandwiched in between Peter verbally acknowledging Christ as the Messiah and then Jesus explaining that to properly acknowledge him means that his followers will have to take up their crosses and follow him, even if it means facing death. The second prediction, back in chapter 9, sits in between a, a challenge to believe who Jesus is, to believe his power, and then some teaching about how his disciples will react to that, how his disciples will treat each other and make choices to limit themselves based on that belief. And then the third one. This passage sits at the beginning of the run-up to the third prediction of his death and resurrection. That's in 10 verse 34. This time, the lead-in seems to be about what it looks like to actually come to Jesus as a disciple. And the follow-up in verses 39 to 45 seems to be about sharing in Jesus' baptism being united to him, drinking from the same cup as him, becoming slaves and servants like him. And so, as we come to Mark 10, this little chunk here about divorce isn't just a random, isolated snippet of teaching. We probably need to see it as something that Mark has thrown in as part of a pattern as he explores what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So, Here in verse 1, Jesus goes into Judea and crowds gather to him as usual and he teaches them, that's his custom. And then, as is their custom, some Pharisees rock up and they test Jesus. That, That could be innocent, they could just be trying to figure out what he thinks, where does he stand theologically, do do they agree with him? Probably not, The, the word test seems to be more hostile, something about trying out his defences. See, they they come to him, they pick a really thorny issue. And they choose a time where he's stood there in front of a crowd. They throw him this awkward question. They're they're giving him rope to hang himself. It's probably as tricky an issue then as it is now. It's emotive, it's difficult. He'd probably have a spread of people in his audience with different opinions. There would be liberal and ultra-conservative. There might be those who who would think it was just plain wrong to divorce. Or those who were unhappily married and quite liked the idea. And and then those who divorced wives before and sent them away. There might be people who would just stick to the Old Testament law, however they'd interpreted it, and and others who would happily follow public opinion. And honestly, there'd probably be a lot of guys there who just might sometimes think, if only I could change this aspect of my life, it would all be better. So we're, we're pretty good at daydreaming like that, aren't we? Kidding ourselves. If not about marriage and a, a thousand other things. If, it, if I could tweak that one thing, then God's blessings would work for me. So they they throw Jesus the kind of question that he can't really answer without offending someone. It's the kind of question, if you watch or listen to Prime Minister's question time, one party leader will chuck a cross at the other, trying to trip him up, and and then they they try and dodge it, answer with clever rhetoric, and not actually deal with the question. I'm not that clever often in Prime Minister's question time, but never mind. It it looks at first like that's what's going on here. So... um, 
Jesus puts it back onto the Pharisees, doesn't he? Verse 3. What did Moses command you? He's saying, is it unlawful for a man to divorce his wife? Well, you're the scholars of the law, guys. What did Moses say? Why are you asking me? So, verse 4. Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And that's true. It's there in Deuteronomy 24. don't need to look it up, but it's in a chunk of miscellaneous laws. If a man's wife becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he can write a certificate of divorce and get rid of her. might seem a little bit unfair by modern standards. Um, It's probably worth pointing out it's a good deal more progressive than a lot of contemporary systems. It's probably worth pointing out as well that although it it reads to us like it's just letting the man do whatever he wants. It seems to have been more about deliberately putting an obstacle in his way, making it hard to divorce. So to divorce his wife, he has to be saying that there's something genuinely wrong with her, so he's going to have to face up to her family on that. He would, in Jewish custom, lose the dowry that he'd paid, and he'd have to present her with a legally binding document saying, you're free of me. It was a permanent change. So he couldn't just do it on a whim and then go back on it. And importantly, there were exceptions elsewhere in the law. Men who had disgraced women and forced them into marriage. Or men who had disgraced them by making unfair accusations about their wives. They were never allowed to divorce. They they couldn't leave their wives destitute like that. The spirit of the law as the Pharisees well knew, was to limit divorce. Effectively, to give women protection from men who thought that they could do whatever they liked. Now, presumably Jesus could have stopped at this point. He says, you've got your answer, why are you questioning Moses? Maybe that's what the Pharisees anticipated. I suspect they'd have followed up with a bunch of technical questions. What constitutes grounds for divorce? What's okay? testing him out, probing him. But instead, he doesn't play that game. He, he turns it back on them. And we get verse 5. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. And then he takes them back to the pattern set down for creation in Genesis. Look at verses 6 to 9. At the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. You're missing the point, he said. It's not about... When can I get a divorce? What can I get away with? When's it lawful? Divorce is wrong. You've only got these divorce laws to test me with because your hearts are hard. Because you struggle to accept the good plan set down for you. And then later with his disciples, in verses um, 10 to 12, he takes it even further, further than most of the conservatives in his audience would have taken it. To divorce and remarry is adultery. 
under the law, that carries some hefty punishment. In fact, it's an adultery that men can be just as guilty of as women. And that would have caused ripples of astonishment. And when Matthew records the same conversation in Matthew 19, he has the disciples saying, Yikes, Jesus, are you serious? In that case, it's safer not to get married. And Jesus says, yeah, it's not for everyone. Not everyone can accept this. It's quite hard teaching. doesn't feel very compassionate, does it? But here's the thing. Right throughout the Old Testament, one of the big pictures, one of the powerful pictures of God is as Israel's husband. It's not just a New Testament idea, though. If you're a note-taker, if you've got a good memory, later, have a read of Isaiah 54. It's great. Verse 5, particularly, says, Your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. Or Jeremiah 3.14, Return, faithless people, declares the Lord. For I am your husband. Or Ezekiel 16, we, we looked at that recently in the morning services, and agonizingly it paints God as the generous but spurned husband and Israel as the faithless wife. Marriage is a picture of that relationship. So when Jesus quotes from Genesis here, he's pointing to a fundamental pattern. It's laid down for God's people, male female get married. It's an enduring covenant. It's one of the most intimate and committed human relationships. And and because of that, it's a picture of God and his people. Not something you're supposed to undo at will. If you're you're not married, take note of this, it's serious stuff. Marriage isn't the holy grail for Christians. It's not for everyone. It's not the ticket to guilt-free satisfaction in a fulfilled life. It means being bound in an intimate relationship to another hard-hearted, sinful human being. Tread carefully. Of course, Jesus isn't a blockhead. He's not being completely uncompassionate. He knows we're sinful. We make terrible choices. We, we inflict horrible wounds on one another. And so you don't have to look all that far in churches or in families and, and you see marriages where people are struggling. Sometimes it's because we make bad choices about who to marry. Sometimes it's because we don't prepare people well for it. We don't teach clearly about what's coming. Sometimes... Couples seem to grow apart as they go through life or or lose the shared purposes as their priorities shift. And I guess in those kind of situations it's easy for outsiders, especially the unmarried or the happily married, easy for them to have strong opinions about what those couples ought to be doing. But honestly, there aren't going to be easy answers, are there? It's clear, sure, Jesus holds marriage in very high esteem here, but to maintain a struggling relationship is going to be non-trivial. 
people get hurt and exhausted. I guess as as churches and as Christians, we need to respond to that, don't we? We need to be good at holding married couples up in prayer and finding ways to strengthen and encourage and sustain. But sometimes as well, that won't work. Notice in verse 10, we've got this implicit assumption. Sorry, verse 11. We've got this implicit assumption that divorce will happen. And in Matthew's account of this, Jesus definitely implies that he does see some acceptable grounds for divorce. And notice as well that God is conscious of his people's failings. He he knows that they're hard-hearted. He knows that they struggle to follow the model. And and, and so verse 4, he gives them a way to deal with it when they can't sustain the model of his relationship. But that divorce is not something to be taken lightly. It's not the Pharisees' academic question to play with and test someone on. It's not the the quick, easy way out for the husband who's got fed up with his wife or or fancies a new marriage. It's not the, the right answer for someone who just wants to know if he can still be lawful and tweak his circumstances to suit him better. And while Jesus implicitly allows divorce is an extreme response in verse 11 it it doesn't make it okay to then set up with someone new marriage is too serious for that it's it's a picture of god and israel and just as all through the history of israel their rejections their faithless divorces from the lord their god those didn't give them the excuse to follow new idols so also here No more so than God, for his part, as Israel's husband. He would never permanently reject his covenant people. He he doesn't let that divorce stand. What God has joined together, let no man separate. It's a serious teaching, isn't it? So what's it doing here? What's Mark saying here about what it means to be a disciple, to follow Jesus? There's lots of application questions we could ask. One is, is there a sense in which you're asking about divorce? So, for the married, that's a literal question. It would have confused me five or six years ago. But even now, only a little way into our marriage, there there are times when the grass seems greener on the other side. Sorry. Yeah, that's going in the notes. But it's wrong for me to entertain those thoughts, isn't it? It is. Because for his good purposes, God has married me to Ruth. And his good purposes include the best possible plan for each of us. And that might be a long life of joy, leisure and ease, culminating in hordes of grandchildren. (laughs) but it might equally well mean in God's good purposes frankly painful times of challenge dissatisfaction and a crucible in which he refines and purifies us burning away dross that 
so that something precious is left behind. Sometimes that's how God talks about what he's doing to his people. It could be agonising. It's probably somewhere in between the extremes. But either way, it's God who is good in his plans. It's not for me to decide otherwise. It's not for me to chase a different blessing. The sovereign, holy one of Israel, he can be trusted. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Not even in daydreams. And yes, there'll be situations where relationships break down to an appalling extent. And Christians will suffer and be hurt, and they may go as far as separation and divorce. And that doesn't change the fact that Jesus loves those people deeply, has died for them, and will welcome them with open arms into his kingdom. But still, married Christians are called to live with your relationships to your spouses as an image of God's to his people. Do you pray about that? Do you pray about that together? Do you think on it and meditate on it together? Do you cleave to each other as Christ to the Father, as Christ to his church? More generally, is there a sense in which you're asking about divorces figuratively? When in in daydream, or in more steady contemplation, your hopes are fixed on something which is not what God seems to be giving you now. Lord, if, if only you'd provide a spouse for me, I'd be a happy servant. If only I had that job. If only my money troubles were taken away. If only you hadn't given me this health problem. If only I had that set of gifts. If only, if only I could be lawfully moved out of this situation that you've put me in and put into a better one. I'm, I'm not saying at all that we shouldn't long for change sometimes. That we shouldn't pray to God to provide everything we need. And trust in his faithfulness there. But do we sometimes fail to trust God to be the providing husband? Do we sometimes ignore or reject what he's given us in favour of what we feel we should have? I think that's a really difficult one, isn't it? Especially when there's that good thing that blessing that you just want, but which isn't yours. Or maybe just isn't yours yet. We can invest so much time in pursuing and say, isn't it lawful for me to have that God? Come on. Does it eclipse your picture of what God's given you now? Does it come to define for you the good blessing that God ought to be given? Or how about when you take on that duty, but it's hard 
it's draining and and right now you, you just don't want it. God, take this away from me. Divorce me from it. G- give me freedom to enjoy the rest of your blessings. In those situations, I, I know from experience, we, when we finally find out that we're not getting our way, it can shake us. Are there places in your life where, like these guys asking about legal ways to achieve divorce, you long for or have grasped a goal which you know is not what God is preparing you for? If you're like me, then the answer is probably yes. Some of that stuff. And the response? Well, I think this is where Mark's really going with the passage. I think the response is to come to Jesus, trusting in him, penitent when we do wrong, asking his help and support where we're weak, rejoicing in him as he blesses us. Because to be a disciple of Jesus is pictured in marriage, united to him, one flesh with him, inseparable. And and importantly, inseparable not because of our faithfulness, because we're a bit pants, we're like Old Testament Israel, we're not faithful. We, we chase after idols, we chase after pleasures, or we run in fear. But Jesus, in constancy, is the faithful, glorious bridegroom who redeems his church at any cost. We can't be divided from him because we're united to him by God's power. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be his bride. And we can't be divorced from him because there is no provision in law for the bride to divorce the groom. And this groom is unflinching and unchanging in his commitment to call us to his kingdom so that we can delight in him and he in us. That's what marriage is a picture of. So Moses permitted divorce in the law because Israel's hearts were hard, but Jesus Now, nothing shall pluck us from his hand. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be united to the Son of Man. I think that's where Mark's going with this later in the chapter. United to the Son of Man, even as he dies and rises again, will share his status, will share his household, even to the extent of being despised by the world. Will share his baptism and drink his cup, becoming imitators of him in service, even to death, and even to glorious resurrection. Because we're united. Let me read before I finish from the end of the story. This is Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4. This is the destination. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. 
They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. To be a Christian is to be wed to Christ. Nothing can separate you from him. And that then is your final destination.